Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. I'm Andrew Paul. And sitting in for Elizabeth is our social media guru, Graham Loomer. Hi, everyone. It's great to be back on the show. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation. We are a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Edmonton is full of generous donors who have created endowment funds at ECF. These funds generate money to support charities in Edmonton and beyond. On this podcast, we share stories about how these funds help strengthen our community. Because... It's good to be well-endowed. Hey, so it's our 100th episode. Heck yeah, it is. It's a great podcast milestone to reach, and we're feeling pretty excited about it. We have a special episode lined up today, but first, thank you. Thank you for listening and for being with us on this podcast journey. And I'm talking to you, our lovely audience. That you take the time to listen to our show means a lot. It's what allows us to keep sharing stories about the amazing donors, organizations, and people that Edmonton Community Foundation has the opportunity to work with. These are stories about how people in Edmonton and area come together to create initiatives and programs that lift up the whole community. This has been the goal of our podcast. Working at ECF, we really do have a unique look at how many different organizations, projects, and collaborations are happening all over our city. Every day, we get to see that so many people care passionately about the environment and the arts and social justice and all those things that make a community strong. It leaves us feeling inspired, hopeful, and proud to be part of this community. We hope that hearing these stories makes you feel the same way. For our 100th episode, we wanted to reflect on how we came to be in such a privileged position to be able to share the stories of how all of you out there come together to make Edmonton an incredible place to be. Lisa Pruden sat down with Martin Garber Conrad, Chief Executive Officer here at ECF, to hear about the history of Edmonton Community Foundation, how it started, how it almost didn't happen, and how the vision to create a fund in support of all Edmontonians continues to guide our work today. There are a few words that always come to my mind when I think of Edmonton Community Foundation. Generosity, collaboration, and legacy. In 2020, ECF published a book that outlined its first 30 years as an organization. It is called Community Comes First. This book reminded me about the power of ideas. The idea that first sparked the creation of ECF has been brought forward from its very first iteration to today. The idea was to create a fund that benefited all of Edmonton and area, not just some Edmontonians or some special interests or initiatives, but really the community as a whole for everyone. This sparked several questions for me, and I was very glad that our CEO, Martin Garber Conrad, was happy to tell me more about how the foundation got started and how the initial vision has managed to be carried forward over three decades. I asked him to tell me about the vision of Tevi Miller, who was the catalyst behind the foundation, and about John Slatter, who was instrumental in bringing the foundation to life. Tevi Miller was really a key leader in the first round. That was the late 60s in, into 1970, 71. Tevi was a very prominent lawyer and very much a civic leader at the time along with political and, and other civic leaders like the mayor and 
business people and, and people that were already philanthropists. He was very much a part of that, and his very key role was stewarding the initial legislation through the Alberta legislature. The Edmonton Community Foundation Act is an act of the legislature. It was put forward as a private member's bill and passed in 1971. Tevi was the person of that original group who really made that happen. What happened then thereafter was there was this really neat, neat idea that a lot of people were interested in, but it just didn't quite catch on. And so it just sat there. The private member's bill had been passed. It, it was there. Here is an excerpt from the petition that presented this private bill to the Legislative Assembly of Alberta. That the object of the foundation is to accept, hold, use, and administer property and funds for charitable, recreational, educational, athletical, cultural, historical, and other purposes, which may be for the benefit and advantage of members of the Edmonton community. Wherefore, your petitioners humbly pray that your Honorable Assembly may be pleased to pass an act for incorporating such a foundation. The organization was official and, and registered, but it didn't have any assets and it, it didn't do anything. And so it just sat there for almost 20 years. And that's where John Slatter comes in, because in the late 1980s, John Slatter was doing some work with John Poole and with Bob Stollery, and they were very interested in thinking about their legacy. They, they were already very involved in philanthropy and community leadership, but they were beginning to think about how can we help this carry on? How can this go beyond our lives and, and interests and whatever? And at some point, these two streams crossed. And in his very diligent research and work, John Slatter found this act of the legislature and said, well, we already have an Edmonton Community Foundation. Why don't we use that? Tevi Miller, of course, was, and some of the other founders were, were still around and, and active, so a lot of conversations ensued. John Slatter had done some research in other communities across Canada and had seen uh, that Vancouver had a large and active foundation, and Winnipeg had a, a very old, in fact, the first foundation in Canada, and so this was not something entirely new, but uh, certainly something we'd never had in Edmonton before. And so they decided to activate it. And there, there's an amusing little exchange mentioned in the book where uh, John Poole asked John Slatter what it would take to get the foundation going. And he said, well, based on my research, it looks like it would take at least $10 million. And John Poole said, well, you've got it. So that led very quickly to uh, reactivating the old Foundation Act and actually starting an organization in 1989. And it was activated or enlivened by three $5 million contributions, one from uh, John and Barbara Poole, one from the George Poole family, and one from Bob Stollery. 
So the first board started in 1989 and uh, really began becoming a force for good in the community. I think key elements of that initial vision were very much in play from the very first days of the foundation. This notion of the long-term good of the community, uh, this notion of partnership with other actors in the community, this notion of not being about a special interest or a special sector, but trying to reach out to all aspects of the community. There were excellent community funders like the United Way, which were very broadly based, but clearly focused on kind of social and community services. And, and that, that obviously was a big part of the foundation too, the, the need to respond to needy people, disadvantaged people, hungry children, people who are homeless, that, that whole constellation of things around poverty. But there was also strong support for the arts. There was very much an interest in education and health and even in the environment, which was not a big area of funding at the time or, or indeed even now, but was understood to be important and so was always part of what the foundation saw itself doing. So that, you know, during the 90s then and, and into the 2000s, the foundation continued to grow and continued to find different ways of helping in Edmonton. What's interesting to me is you've got Tevi Miller and this group of civic leaders back in the late 60s and 70s before I even came to Edmonton. And then you've got this sort of next group 20 years later who, who took what had been formed and actually enlivened it, put it into action. And then to see now you know, another 20 years later, almost 30 years later, to see how much continuity there is, even though the community has changed and the needs have kind of changed, so much of what they set in motion is still relevant. Uh, the notion of being a 360 funder, the notion of trying to help broadly in the community, help lots of groups, not, not just pick a few favorites, the need and, and the desire to actually partner with charities in the community, not just to be a, a funder who's completely aloof and separate, but try to find ways to get more involved. And a real desire to involve a number of and a variety of donors, not just have it be for a small number of wealthy people, but finding ways to reach out to a whole variety of people in the community and show them that they too can create legacies, that they too can be important in supporting causes that are important to them and causes that respond to contemporary challenges and opportunities in the community. ACF became alive and active in 1989 and Martin joined the board and the development committee just four years later in 1992. I'm very curious about what your experience was coming onto yeah. this organization. So what was that like? Well, it was, a, it was an interesting experience being appointed to this board because, of course, everybody else was a businessman or a lawyer. On the first board, as, as I recall, there was only kind of one person who wasn't a businessman or a lawyer, and that was uh, Ann Day. 
she was a community volunteer, and I think we had we had served together on the social services advisory committee for the city, and I think that's how she knew of me, and maybe it was she who suggested me. I don't think I knew any of the other board members very well. You know, in those days, you know, I would have been at E4C for a few years, but I still felt like a kid, and I still felt like this, you know, social service charity inner city kind of guy, and so, uh, you know, it was kind of a big deal to get all dressed up and uh, hang around for an afternoon with businessmen and, and lawyers and all that. It felt very special and, and a bit scary to be on the board, but I, uh, you know, I think I had a good relationship with Ann Day, and we'd, we'd shared some interesting discussions and, and positions on matters, and I saw the kind of work that she did as a volunteer with the granting function of the foundation, in addition to being on the board, and just saw how important that was. I mean, what I found interesting about actually being on the board as as I gradually felt more comfortable and began to actually participate instead of just sitting there behaving myself, that the board started a tradition of having somebody from the charitable sector actually on the board. Many funding boards would deliberately exclude anybody who actually ran a charity or, or might be coming to them for money. But ECF started a practice. I mean, it was never written down, but but there was always a charity CEO on the board. I remember some of the people that, that then came on, I think, with me and, and after me, Marjorie Benz from the Food Bank and Liz O'Neill from Big Brothers Big Sisters and John Mann from Edmonton Arts Council and Rod Road from the Family Center. So we've gone out of our way, certainly during my time, to make sure that we always have somebody directly involved in in the charitable sector. It, I think it helps ground the foundation and has proved very helpful in getting an inside view of what's happening in the sector. Martin was on the board until 1997, but he kept an interest in the foundation, watching it grow and being involved as much as he could. He had already started his own family fund. That gave me a, another connection that, that continues to this day of also being a donor to the foundation. You know, that's kind of a fun thing too. I asked Martin what he was seeing as the foundation continued to grow and integrate into the community. Well, certainly the, um, the foundation grew in size and therefore uh, the amount of money that it could grant, particularly when Doug McNally came on as CEO probably around 95 or 96, so kind of at the tail end of my time on the board, Doug McNally became CEO and he certainly upped the foundation's game in terms of being involved in the community and and doing more than just giving grants, but uh, playing that role of convening people to discuss urgent problems supporting not just individual agencies, but collaborations, and on rare but key occasions when problems demanded extra action and action that nobody else was prepared or, or situated to undertake, like with our Children's Millennium Fund. Uh, there, there was certainly a, a keen interest in, in the late 90s and, and a growing understanding of the damage that child poverty did to our whole community and to the future of the whole community, not, not just the kids who were, 
who were in poor families. And so really uh, led and stewarded a very significant effort to raise serious money to help with that. So, you know, I think I, I saw the foundation continuing to do what it had always done in terms of working with donors to find ways to help them support the causes that were important to them, building legacies for the future of the community in a whole variety of areas, and then you know, reaching out in a somewhat more activist way around particular issues that benefited from uh, wider community support. When you did join ECF as CEO in 2005, what was that like to come on in that capacity? And was it what you expected it to be? Well, it was certainly kind of scary because there was this big organization now. And uh, I mean, it, it, it wasn't so much the size because, you know, by that time, we had more than 100 staff at E4C, so coming to an organization with 12 or 15, it it wasn't that, but it was the the gravity of the community foundation and the gravity of the board and, and the seriousness with which everybody worked. Even though a very young organization, the community foundation was perceived as a senior organization in the community and one that had to be taken seriously and one that, you know, I didn't want to mess it up. I knew a lot about running a charity, you know, one that really grew, one that was big, one that was active, but I didn't know anything about running a foundation. And of course, almost nobody else knew about running a community foundation either because we were the only one in town. So uh, the the precedent I had, of course, was, was Doug McNally. And I had known him at least a bit uh, from my time on the board and from seeing him in action in the community. So it really helped to have his model. But, uh, you know, I was coming kind of from kind of a different place. I, I had never been police chief and I, uh, you know, didn't usually uh, hang with all these fancy people. But uh, people who worked at the Community Foundation and, and people who were on the board, you know, as I got to know them, of course, were were very real people with a real commitment to the community and a real desire to have the community foundation uh, do good things in the community. So, you know, it took me a little while to to get my feet under me and to get comfortable with it, but uh, it was okay. And then it's, you know, it started being fun. And then uh, 2008 and the financial crisis and, you know, the bottom dropped out of the markets and everybody was worrying, you know, what's going to happen to not just the financial markets, but what's going to happen to the economy, what's going to happen to the country. Okay, I didn't fully appreciate until just now that the 2008 financial crisis happened just three years after Martin took the helm of ECF. This was a pivotal time for Edmonton Community Foundation, and to add to the pressure, some financial institutions had already been doubting the endowment model that many community foundations like ECF are based on. It was already being talked about before that, that the endowment model is dead, that that doesn't work anymore. Uh, And it was partly because people were concerned that the stock market was too undependable. There, there There was too much variation and that overall the good times were nearing an end. And, you know, eventually, market returns were going to be below what would be able to support an endowment foundation. 
The other thing that was happening was that there was a perception that donors were no longer interested in endowments, or if they were, they only wanted to uh, have donor-advised funds. The uh, financial institutions were moving into what we thought of as our space and creating donor-advised funds, and there was the fear or the suggestion that uh, that some of the uh, fundraising machines by the big charities would be so effective that donors would no longer uh, have anything left to give to endowments. And so there was a suggestion that foundations needed to uh, either drastically reduce or change and give up on this whole endowment thing and just be you know, fundraisers and get money in every year and give it out every year. So then when the financial crisis came along and with double-digit negative returns, it was, oh, geez, we, we, we have to give 3.5%. The government demands that we do that every year. And, you know, this year we made it minus 16%. How, how can we possibly do that, you know? Other foundations across the country were thinking, gee, we better stop granting, save save the money, because, you know, look how much our portfolio lost. But uh, we we didn't overreact. We held tight. We, we gave out our 3.5%, and the wheels did not fall off the bus. In fact, since then, we have, we have continued to grow, but uh, that was actually, that turned out to be an incredibly positive experience, and the foundation's board responded in a very positive and very helpful way and a way that we still refer back to even now, what, 10, almost 15 years later. We, we did not stop granting in 2008, and we just took a breath and carried on doing what we were doing. We made some tiny little tweaks, but what 2008 demonstrated to us was that actually the endowment model does work and that there are good years and not so good years in the market, but overall there's continuity. And if you have the right investment policy, you can survive both the good years and the bad. And of course, from the community side, community charities need the money even more in hard times than in good times. And so being able to be dependable and be able to be counted on by community charities for what we commit to doing with them and with the community, in other words, being there, providing dependable funding through good times and bad, that's been incredibly important. And we, we had a chance to reflect on that last year when COVID started. And in fact, we were less concerned about what might happen to the markets and used our experience that even in 2008, things didn't all go to heck. So so we got to keep granting. And, and of course, we found ways to, to grant even more because the community needed it more last year. And uh, yeah, investment returns were not great last year, but they were okay. We, we have preserved the long-term value of our funds and our ability to grant into the community. And that's, uh, that's very exciting. And I think that, you know, in, in my head, even though none of the current board members were on the board in 2008, that sort of corporate memory 
of of the foundation surviving that crisis and then thriving even more the next year as markets recovered was really good learning for the different crisis last year. Certainly the uh, COVID and, and our current crises show that yes, there's, there's a huge need in the community, probably more than ever. We, we certainly see a value to the community in having an ongoing capacity to help not only now, but in the future. So, so I think that, you know, that financial crisis, it, it, it showed us that our investment policies work in terms of the way in which we structure our portfolio, the way in which we invest in a variety of asset classes, the way in which we review that regularly and adjust it, but that the basic model works and that uh, we're able to distribute more than the government requires and we're able to provide for inflation so that we are maintaining the real value of the endowment and the capacity to support things into the future. So, you know, we we demonstrated that on kind of the technical financial side, but we've also demonstrated that, yeah, things change and there are different trends in, in fundraising and philanthropy but there are still people who are interested in setting up endowments. And there are people in our community, people that we know and people we don't yet know who have incredible capacity, both financially to give and that have a genuine interest in giving back to the community. And so we're, we're trying to match up our, our vehicles with, with those people, but you know, even now, we never suggest that this is the only kind of philanthropy that, that people should do, but uh, it is a kind of philanthropy that I think is is a good addition to almost anyone's portfolio who wants to be generous in giving back to the community. And I think we can show that over the medium and long term, it's pretty good value. So yeah, that's we, we learned all that from that silly financial crisis in 2008. So, during Martin's first few years as CEO, Edmonton Community Foundation made the transition to new leadership and navigated the global recession of 2008. Martin credits the staff of ECF for helping him find his feet. One of the other things that made coming to the foundation work so well was, uh, and, and really helped me get over my fear and scariness in those that first little while was... Uh, getting to know the staff here. I think uh, particularly about Kathy Hawksworth, who was in her donor services role then, and and there were certainly lots of others. Gradually, Scott Graham took over granting, uh, uh, Mira in finance, and then eventually uh, Carol Watson in communications. Having those key staff directors was really encouraging and comforting to me. And as I got to know them better, I very quickly came to appreciate their incredible quality and their ability not only to do their job, but to keep the whole of the foundation in mind. I mean, that was kind of my role was pulling everything together. And But having in senior staff people that not only handled their own portfolio, but were very sympathetic to and supportive of each other and of the other departments. 
there was genuine collegiality, and I think that collaboration was a good, that internal collaboration was a good model for the kind of external collaboration that we uh, that we wanted to encourage in the community and and to have with them. So, uh, yeah, all of that uh, helped me get a handle on everything, and uh, to this day, enjoy my time here. Collaboration is key. This internal collaboration Martin described is still very much a part of the ECF team, and it is also key to larger community collaborations. And a big part of what fosters all this collaborating and innovating is one word, yes. So just from my own personal experience, yes is a word that I've heard here a a lot more than any other organization that I've worked with, and I've worked with some great places. Can you talk a little bit about where that comes from? Yeah, I I don't know where it comes from and I sometimes uh I sometimes surprise myself particularly because I have had experience running a charity and running with scarce resources and and trying to run programs on ridiculous government contracts and putting in proposals to funders, including the Community Foundation, where the answer was, sorry, can't can't do it, or, you know, thank you for your proposal, no. And, and, you know, I'm pretty aware of things that can go wrong and reasons why things shouldn't work. But for some reason, I've, I've chosen to, to have a different attitude or, or at least to change my initial response. It's not that we never say no, it's not that I never say no, but I try to keep reminding myself and I encourage the rest of the staff here to have our first answer be yes. Even strictly as a funder, our main purpose is not to find things that are wrong with applications. In other words, reasons to reject them. (laughs) There are sometimes really good reasons for rejecting applications, and we just have to. But our first response, whether it's to a formal application or simply to a need or challenge in the community is, yeah, we could we could do that. Let's try to find a way to do that. And so, I mean, I try to do that with staff here. You know, people come up with stuff that I wouldn't have thought of, People even come up with stuff that, you know, at first thought, I think, gee, that doesn't sound like a very good idea. But my first answer, I I try to make that yes. And then, so let's figure out how to do it. Or, okay, show me how these problems can be overcome. And so I want, you know, I want to encourage people in the community to do that too, because it's not difficult to see that so many of the problems and challenges facing the community are really difficult. If if they were easy peasy, they would have already been solved. And uh, there's lots of reasons to say no and just move on to try to do something easier. But I, I've tried to encourage people to think about, well, yeah, there must be a way. And I try to challenge myself you know, even when I'm feeling negative, not 
to say no first, but, uh, you know, kind of at worst to say, well, maybe, uh, <laughs> and then see if there's a way we can get to yes. So I, I'm sure I, I don't do that perfectly, but uh, I'm delighted that you have found a lot more yeses in this organization than some others you have seen, and that's certainly uh, my experience as well. It seems some of the initiatives that do get funded are perhaps riskier. Yeah, no, I I think that's fair. And that's, you know, when you read the literature about not just community foundations, but all of private philanthropy, this is supposed to be the community's risk capital. We are supposed to be able to pilot things, try things out. And in fact, I was looking through the history book again, and one of our previous board chairs actually said something like, it's okay for us to fund things that don't work. And I mean, that's what it's supposed to be. But I think, you know, these days, there's so many funders who, who are only willing to fund things that are tried and true or that appear to be. And, uh, you know, even if they don't work very well, well, they're less risky than some other things. Or if we go big, it might fail big and then people would notice so if we just go small, then, you know, if it doesn't work, maybe nobody will notice. And so I hope that at least sometimes we can go big, and I hope we can take a chance on new things, untried things. Often, even things that appear that way are not entirely new. In fact, they've probably been done in 17 other cities. Just they're, they're new for us here. And there are many charities in our community that are very much leaders in their field, at, at least nationally, if not internationally. And so they're going to come up with really good ideas. We've got a lot of smart people in this community, and I want us to be at least one of the organizations that, that can say yes to them. Do you have uh, an example or story of uh, perhaps doing one of these riskier grants or a community collaboration? Is there one that stands out to you? You know, a lot of things were probably risky at the beginning, but don't seem so risky now. But um, one of the key collaborations that that's particularly close to me because it actually started well before I came to the foundation. So it's now uh, more than 20 years old. My predecessor, Doug McNally, was intimately involved in the founding of CUP, the Community University Partnership for Children, Youth, and Families. And that's still going. And, and in fact, it's, it's probably even stronger now than it was. And it's done uh, dozens and dozens of really important community-based research projects with a variety of charities in the community and, and has created new knowledge about what's important and what works for children, youth, and families, has had significant impact even at the level of government policy on some of the issues related particularly to uh, disadvantaged children, to early learning and care, and to much more positive ways of assisting, uh, for example, families living in poverty. So that's that's been very exciting. Collaboration between one or two or three community agencies is not unprecedented. In fact, Edmonton has a good track record of, of charities working together when you look at 
compare Edmonton to other major cities in Canada. But this kind of deep collaboration between academics at the university and people on the ground in community, and not just big charities, but smaller charities, charities working with newcomer communities, charities working with indigenous people, charities working with homeless people and people living in poverty. So a whole variety of, of levels and disciplines, uh, nursing and public health and sociology. And so that's, that's a very exciting one, very ongoing one. And I'm so pleased that, that the Community Foundation has been a stable long-term funder of that initiative since the very beginning. And that's exceedingly rare for community foundation, for any foundation, because foundations tend to do short-term funding. You know, a three-year grant would be long-term for many foundations, but uh, this one's gone on for much longer than that, and, and it actually works. The, uh, the other one uh, that comes to mind is All In For Youth. It's a more traditional one in a way in that it's several charities working together to provide wraparound service for disadvantaged children through the school system. And so both school boards are involved. And in this one, the funders, namely the United Way and us and REACH, we're all around the table as well. So trying to break down that, you got funders over here, well, we'll give you the money if you do what we want, and charities over here kind of begging for enough money to run the program. But we're all around the table together, planning and learning and working together to bring services to children and families who very much need it. I mean, that's grown into a multi-million dollar program. Some private sector funding has been attracted to it. Uh, so a number of people have been brought into that all around finding better ways to support disadvantaged children and their families. And it's been very cool. Again, the Community Foundation provided significant ongoing funding for that, but but we were also around the table trying to provide some community leadership and uh, help everybody find ways to get through all the challenges. So that's that's been satisfying and uh, we've learned a lot there as well. So with these collaborations that work well, it, it goes both ways. We're able to share our expertise and the things that, that we know how to do and we're able to learn. I asked Martin to tell me about a time when he was most proud or excited to be a part of ECF. I mean, uh, I've talked about the downside of 2008 and and how scary and troubling and potentially bad it was, but uh, I was was really proud of the board for hanging in there. And uh, we certainly had a lot of discussions about what we should do and what we needed to do, but they hung in there. You know, we worked the plan and it worked out. So I was, I was very pleased with that. I was very pleased in about 2011 when the board responded to the uh, Canadian Task Force on Social Finance that called on foundations to put at least 10% of their assets to mission investing or social finance kind of things. And our, our board agreed to do it. And that was when we started the Social Enterprise Fund. And, uh, you know, it took a few years, but we got to 10% of how big we were when we made the commitment. The problem was that in the years thereafter, we more than doubled in size. So, so we're still still trying to get us up to 10% of what we are now. But 
I mean, back then, 10% was 25 million, and now it's, you know, 50 or 60 or 70 million. So we're, we're still working. And the Social Enterprise Fund has, has made more than $70 million worth of loans over the years. So that's, that's terribly exciting. And, you know, several other large community foundations in Canada are, are also doing this, but we, we were out front on this one, and that was very exciting. A third more recent thing that comes to mind is probably 2017 and following. We commissioned our equity audit. We, we started thinking about how, how can we get even more serious about our work with, with different communities. We talked about it as equity-seeking communities, and I think we, you know, we thought particularly about indigenous communities and BIPOC communities, uh, newcomer communities, and LGBTQ communities. And so we commissioned an audit of our granting practices that grew into an audit of pretty well the entire organization. And one of the things we did out of that, in, in addition to trying to adjust our granting practices to make it more accessible to organizations from some of those communities, which are often smaller and younger and perhaps not as well positioned to apply for grants, to really make sure that we were reaching out to them. And this all kind of culminated in our equity statement. And that whole process has been, I think, incredibly helpful to us and has positioned us well. I mean, we, we, we know we have more work to do. We're continuing to do that work, but uh, we're, we're on it. And I'm really pleased with both how our staff and our board have, have responded to that and how we've been able to adjust and grow and deepen our commitment to those communities. So I'm very pleased about that. And then the final thing is is simply COVID itself and how quickly we were able to get the Rapid Response Fund rolling and how we committed resources over which we had discretion and we invited our donors to contribute more. And the work that we did in those first few weeks then positioned us very well to take part when the government made some money available. And so we were able to put several million dollars into the community in addition to maintaining all our normal granting. And we were able to do it in a way that uh, was not burdensome on organizations that were already facing their own challenges with adjusting to COVID. And we were able to get money out the door very quickly for a whole variety of, of interesting things to support the community, to encourage dealing with the immediate demands of the pandemic and also to uh, make some adjustments that would that would position them as organizations to continue in the medium and longer term under what still might be quite changed circumstances so i'm absolutely delighted that we were uh, that we were able to do that so quickly and you know provide some assistance to helping the nonprofit sector come through the pandemic before we closed, Martin shared some thoughts about how ECF could do better at sharing community stories. One of the ongoing challenges, and it's a challenge both in the, this is really hard and we've got to do it better, and this is really fun, and I'm glad we're finding ways to do it. And that's, I mean, we're a funder. We provide not insignificant resources, but in the whole scheme of things, even 
a few million dollars, even tens of millions of dollars in the whole context of nonprofit sector fundraising and particularly government funding, you know, we're, we're not a big player, but we're not insignificant either. And so what we do makes a difference, but the real action, it's done by the charities that we work with, the charities that we provide funding for, the charities that we support. And so finding a way to tell our story, to talk about the good work that gets done in the community, but not inappropriately appropriate somebody else's story. You know, we're, we're a modest part of the whole thing. Even these main collaborations, you know, like CUP or All In For Youth, you know, 50 or $100,000 a year forever. Well, there's three or four or five other organizations that are also doing that. We, we often partner with the city, with, with United Way, and, and sometimes with other private funders, sometimes other government funders. You know, there's, there's collaborative funding in everything. And organizations also raise a lot of money themselves from people we don't even know. So to talk about the importance of that and to help people in the community see how endowments can do that, whether there's specific endowments around a particular cause or whether there's the discretionary funding that we're able to allocate because people have allocated money to the community fund, that's all very important. We, we want to tell that story, but we also need to allow the organizations that are actually doing the work on the ground to also own the story. And so that, that's kind of an ongoing challenge from the communications perspective. You know, when I, when I think back through, throughout the history book, to bring this back around to John Slatter and Tevi and the Pools and Stollery, it's all about the community. They, they were not primarily about building an institution. They were only about building something that would be substantial enough and resilient enough to actually be of long-term benefit to the community. And, you know, our board and our staff and in my role, we always try to have the community on top or in front or, or whatever metaphor one wants, one wants to use there's no point in doing this work if it's not for the community. And so, you know, for me, uh, to have an opportunity to be even a small part of that, that's very cool. And that's uh, made this gig a very significant and pleasing part of my career. I am uh, still exceedingly grateful for that opportunity. A very big thanks to Martin Garber Conrad for joining us on the show. It was great to hear about some of ECF's history from someone who has been so closely connected. Near the beginning of this story, you heard an excerpt from the petition that presented this private bill to the Legislative Assembly of Alberta. That was voiced by Neka Otobulu, who is the Director of Communications and Equity Strategy here at ECF. Thanks, Neka. If you'd like to learn more about ECF's history and all of the people who helped make it the very cool place it is today, and there are a lot of those people out there, you can request a copy of the 30th anniversary book we produced last year by emailing info at ecfoundation.org. And these books are free, so go ahead and drop us a line. We'll have the link to more information about our history, community collaborations, and initiatives in our show notes at thewellendowedpodcast.com.
While you're there, don't forget to check out all of our upcoming student awards and granting deadlines. There may be something there for you. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks so much for sharing your time with us. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, be sure to share it with all your friends. If you have time, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews help new listeners find our show. And come find us on Facebook. That's where you can share your thoughts and see some pictures. Thanks again for tuning in. We've been your hosts, Andrew Paul. And Graham Loomer. Until next time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation. And is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at the ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well Endowed.